Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 6. And that's where we'll focus our attention today, Romans chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's once again look to God and ask for his help in prayer as we come to the ministry of the word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you in particular for this epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Roman Christians. What a blessing it is to have the gospel laid out in such detail and wonderful expression of the truth of your word and of Jesus Christ and his great salvation. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law today do that by granting me the help of the Holy Spirit and granting us all the help of the Holy Spirit to hear what your word has to say to us today. And we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last week, as we were in Romans 6, I mentioned that there are similarities between this first half of Romans chapter 6 and the last half of Romans chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul spoke about similarities between Christ and Adam, the first man. Chapter 6 speaks about similarities between Christ and believers. 
in chapter 5, the similarities between Adam and Christ stem from the fact that both of them were, or we could say are, heads or representatives of a people. Adam is the head of all human beings that were born in him, especially in that they inherit his sin. Of course, that's not true of Jesus Christ when he came into the world, but he's the head of all people, all of his offspring, if you will. In chapter 6, the similarities between Christ and his people are grounded in the fact that believers are in union with our Savior. Let me just briefly review. I'll do it more briefly than I did last week. I, I com feel compelled to do this because this, this, this text, the first part of Romans 6, especially all hangs together. So let me just briefly review the first seven verses, which we've already considered. Starting out in verse 1, you have what I called a likely but bad question. Likely that it's a natural question from a sinner, but a question is, that's bad because a Christian should never raise it. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Following from his argument in verse five or chapter 5. But then he answers it quickly, and his answer is found in verses 2 to 7. It starts out with this straightforward statement or answer. Certainly not, in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So his answer is no, we shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't act that way. Continue to sin that grace may abound. We're Christians. We've died to sin. And then the second part of his answer is in verse 3, which is that the baptized were baptized into Christ's death. He says that in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then his answer continued in verses 4 through 7. I summarized it this way. We, the baptized, that is believers, were thus buried in Christ, but also raised. And I pointed out three things we could summarize that, uh, this teaching with. Number one, our spiritual union with Christ is lived out in our conversion and subsequent Christian life. Notice the ends of verse 4 in particular, after it says we were buried with him in baptism through death. At the end it says, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So our spiritual union with Christ is lived out in our conversion when we die to sin, but also our rising to newness of life. And notice how it says that in verse 4, that we should walk in newness of life. That means that's the way we live as Christians, those who have died to sin. And now our walk in this world is characterized in this way, newness of life like Christ. And you have a similar thing in verse 6 where it says, We know that our old man was crucified with him not just on the cross, but also in our conversion, we died to sin, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So that's something that happens in our life. So that's the first point there of this argument in verses 4 to 7. 
The second thing is, because of our union, because our union with Christ is real, <clears throat> this combination of death, immediately followed by life, is absolutely certain to happen. Notice verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, and now we can emphasize the next word, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a certain thing that we'll walk in newness of life if we have experienced that death to sin that Paul writes about here. And then the third point is sin's mastery has been ended for a Christian. The Christian's bondage to sin has been done away with. It's been abolished. And that's what Paul is saying here in these verses. Verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Similar to the statement down in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. I used the illustration of a war, and I said, when a Christian has been converted and he's died to sin, to use the language of Paul here in this text, it's kind of like a war that has been won, <clears throat> excuse me, very decisively. I said, not like the war, the 20 years war that our country fought in Afghanistan recently, it came to an end, and immediately after the end, what happened? The enemies that we were purportedly fighting against immediately took over the country again. That, that's not a good picture of Christian conversion. A war that has been won decisively is the picture of Christian conversion. And there have been many wars like that over the history of the world. We read about some of them in the Bible. Um, the population might not be entirely wiped out, Yet the war is won in such a way that there is no ability left on the part of the nation that was conquered. No heart is left, even if there are bodies, to try to fight that war again or take back their country. And so I had two points of practical application. Number one is every Christian has died to sin. You can't read Romans 6 any other way. And the point is, if you're a fearful Christian, a hesitant Christian, a doubtful Christian, um, what shall I say, a lackadaisical Christian, Christian who is not getting after the work that God calls him to do and mortifying sin in the Bible the way that he should, think about it this way, that if I'm a Christian, I've died to sin. The battle may be difficult, but I can do this through Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't sell yourself short. Expect great things from yourself. I don't mean that you can do it in your own strength. But with all that God has given you and all that God has done in you, if you're a Christian, you can do what he calls you to do. That's Paul's point in this passage. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Verse 14. And then the second point of application was every Christian is joined to Christ. And that's one of the great emphases of this passage. We'll see it today as we look at verses 8 and following. 
Every Christian is joined to Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, to anticipate chapter 8, nothing can separate you from your covenant head, from your champion, to put it in the terms of chapter 5, the one to whom you are forever joined. Well, that's what we saw last time. Now, uh, as we considered the likely but bad question in verse 1, and then the answer to that question in verses 2 through 7. Now today, let's consider our confidence regarding life in Christ. Our confidence regarding life in Christ, and that's in verses 8 through 10. Let me read them again. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So it's verses 8 through 10, and the point is our confidence regarding our life in Christ. First of all, let's look at our confidence. That's verse 8, and then we'll look at its basis in verses 9 and 10. Our confidence, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. To a degree, it's a restatement of what we have in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that is, the we is believers, if we believers have been united together, not meaning just all of us together, though that's true, but we've been united together as a group, but also as individuals, we've been united together with Christ. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, notice how verse 8 is a parallel statement, very close to that of verse 5. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So that's our, our confidence as it said in verse 5, it's a certain thing. And in verse 8, so verse 5, Paul's point is how certain that is. If you're united together in the death of Christ, you'll be united together in his resurrection. But now the point in verse 8 is, picking up on that idea of certainty, here the certainty of this union, our union with Christ the certainty of our shared experience with Christ. He died, I died. He rose, I rose. The certainty of my union with him in those things imparts confidence to us. That's the point of verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe, emphasis on the word believe here, we believe that we shall also live with him. So that's the idea. We're convinced of the certainty. So Paul brings up that similarity again between us and Christ. He died, I died. He rose, I rose. And that makes me say this. I believe that I will live with him. You see it? And we need that confidence as we live the Christian life. And that's what this verse is about. Our confidence we believe. Think back to chapter 5 again. 
We talked about Adam being a covenant head or a federal head. Christ being a federal head. He's our representative. He's our head. And I use that illustration from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin that with both of these giant men, in a sense, Adam as the head of all the human race and Christ as the head of the church or the head of all the elect, all believers from all the ages, from way back to Adam and Eve through whoever the last person is in this world who comes to be saved through faith in Christ. Christ is the head of all of those. Thomas Goodwin used this illustration that we are hanging from the belts of our federal heads. If you're a Christian, you came into this world hanging onto Adam's belt, but now as a Christian, you're hanging from Jesus Christ's belt. And so that's the idea here. And we could ask this question at this point. Did Jesus Christ enter the valley of death? He didn't just go through the valley of the shadow of death. He entered the valley of death when he died on the cross. Did he go through that valley with us on his belt as he entered that valley and then exit with us missing? That's the question we could ask here. Did that happen? Is it even conceivable that that might have happened? From a biblical perspective, it's impossible that that could happen. The Bible gives us the entire picture of our salvation as relates to that question. Might we have fallen off of Christ's belt? Might it be that we could have died with him, but not then live with him? There's the question. So remember the teaching of chapter 5 in this regard. What the head does, he does on our behalf. He does on behalf of all the people he represents. What he does, we do. What happens to him, happens to us. Just look back at verse at chapter 5 for a moment. And let's consider it in terms of Adam. Look at verse 12. I just said what, what the, the head does, all the members do, all those that he represents. And that's the statement in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's Adam. He's named there in verse 14. Uh, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And then notice what happened. Death spread to all men. It didn't stop with Adam. It spread to all men. Not only did we experience the effects of Adam's sin, it also says that death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. And when Adam died, therefore we died. That's the idea. What he does, we do. I used the illustration back in that chapter of a sports team. I'll do it again. I'll use a different sport, I think, than what I used last time. Let's use the World Series, baseball. I think the roster for a World Series is 25 players. So let's say there's a player on a winning team. He never appears in a game. He's on the roster. He never appears in the game. Did he personally win 
the World Series. I mean, sometimes guys say, you know, you really won the series for us. In fact, they pick an MVP. They say this is the guy who especially did everything it took for that team to win. About that player sitting on the bench, though, nobody ever says that. And we could look at that guy and say to the question, did he personally win the World Series? We might say, no, he did nothing. But didn't he win it? Was he on the winning team? Yes. Will his name go into the record books as a winner of the 2000-whatever World Series? Did he, did he get a World Series ring? Of course he did. He was on the roster, so did he get a cut of the winning team's payout for the World Series? There runs into hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, he gets that. Will he forever be known as a World Series winner? Yes. Does he have the right to wear the t-shirt that says he's a World Series champion? Yes. He never threw a ball. He never hit a ball. He never faced a pitch. He never stood in the field. But yes, he won the World Series. We're used to thinking in those terms. It's not wrong to think in those terms. That's the way it is here. Adam is the head of one team. Christ is the head of another team. Adam was, as we came into this world, our head. Our champion, in a bad way, in a negative, with a negative result. None of us, not you, not I, ever had, literally or physically, any fruit from the garden between our teeth. Never had any of it in our stomach or in any part of our digestive tract. None of our DNA was on the skin of the fruit as perhaps the remains of it lay on the ground when God came and asked what happened here. We wouldn't have been caught if it had to do with DNA. But the Bible's teaching is God regards us as having eaten the fruit. That's the meaning of Romans 5.12 when it says, Thus death spread to all men because all sin. And therefore he treats us as though we had eaten the fruit. And he does so righteously. And you don't want to say that's not fair. At least you should not want to say that. And you shouldn't want to say that I'll have none of that. Because it's only through that means, through that way of having a federal head, that you can be saved from your sin. You say it, saved from Adam's sins. Both are true. That's the only way anyone can ever be saved, through the work of the covenant head. Because what happens to him happens to us. And what he does, we are regarded by God as having done. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. It's that whole way of God's dealing with people in this world that leads Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 5.21 what he writes here about the gospel. It's a way to summarize the gospel. Summarize the glorious good news 
of how sinners can be saved and how sinners are saved. Romans 5.12 has the negative side of it. Adam sinned. He got the righteous deserts of death, and so death spread to everyone, you and me included, spiritual death. And not only that, his sin is credited to our account, and we are therefore regarded as having committed it. We died because we sinned in him. Now, here's the flip side of it, the gospel side of it, the side that represents the headship of Jesus Christ. And it says this, For he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, he never sinned himself, but he made him to be sin for us. That means at least that he treated him as the sinner that he was not, because he was representing us who are sinners. He treated him as if he were as guilty as we. He laid our guilt on him. He visited the punishment for sin on him. The punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. God gave all that to Christ. He endured it in our place. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we're given life. We have his righteousness credited to our account. He's treated as if he sinned. We're treated as if we've paid for our sins through death, which we never could. But we're treated that way because he did it in our place and on our behalf. And thus we're saved. We're given life, as it tells us in Romans chapter 6. That's the idea. So this is how it works with these federal heads, these representative men, Adam and Christ. It's a righteous thing because God ordered it that way. Who is righteous and who always does what is right and only what is right. And it's a blessed thing, brethren, that there would be covenant heads because without our covenant head, we could never be saved from sin. You could never save yourself. That's the uniform teaching of the Bible. So I repeat, the Bible gives us the entire picture of our salvation as relates to this question that I asked a few minutes ago. Did Jesus Christ, and this brings us back to our text, when it says that in verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. All right, so there's our text for the moment, verse 8. Did, did Christ enter the valley of death with us on his belt so that we died with him? But then did he enter the valley of death with us missing? Is it even conceivable that we might have died with him but then not live with him? Because that's the question in view here in Romans 6 so far, and especially in verse 5 and in verse 8 and the surrounding text. And the answer is a clear and definite no. I know you know that, but that's the answer. And the reason for that, or one reason for that, is that our union with Jesus Christ is the controlling factor, we could say, in every aspect of our salvation, or at every stage of our salvation. It all occurs with us sinners elect sinners being in 
Christ Jesus. And what I'd like to do, what I'd like to do is just briefly walk through that by looking at a number of texts with you just to emphasize this point. I want to this is one of the reasons I'm only getting to a couple of verses today rather than going through verse 11 which was my goal until yesterday afternoon because I think it is worthwhile for us to dwell on this for a bit. So let's do that. Uh, starting out with the idea of predestination, when we were chosen by God. We already looked at the text this morning earlier in the adult Bible class, Ephesians 1 and verse 4. We were just gonna, I was just going to read that one verse, but we read in the adult class verses 3 through 5, I believe. So let's read those three verses, because... A lot of what Pastor Smith said this morning really tied in with the point I want to make here, and that makes it um, great for me to, to explain this. And I'm just going to show another side of the coin. And it, it's patent in these verses. He was emphasizing the love of God being at work here in our predestination. He talked about the sovereign nature of God's love. We'll see that here. But the thing I want to focus on is our union with Christ at every point in our salvation. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and here's the first notice of it, in Christ. So the blessing that comes to us at every point is in Christ, starting at the very beginning, if you will, verse 4. Just as he chose us, the sovereign choice, as we saw in the adult class, for no good in us, just because, uh, as it says at the end of verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will, it was sovereign. But notice, the choice was still in him, in Christ. It was because of Christ, just as much as it was because of his love, God's love. Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And here's Pastor Smith's emphasis, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. When it all began, it began in Christ, that is our salvation. And then let's fast forward, if you will, to Christ's entry in the world. I'm just hitting high points here, but as I said, it's every aspect of our salvation. Christ enters into the world. Let's go back to John 17. And notice Jesus' words here in what has been called his high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 6. We could say with an eye back toward that being chosen by God in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world, we have this part of the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. He revealed the Father in a greater way than has ever been done in the history of the world before by his presence with the apostles and through his teaching to them, I have manifested your name to those men whom you have given me. And then he says this, they were yours, you gave them to me, 
and they have kept your word. So when did God the Father give them to him? I don't think it was when he called them as apostles, though that is an expression of it. I think it was when he chose them in him before the foundation of the world. That's the way most Reformed writers would look at that as well. So when Christ entered in the world, into the world, it was already that he had certain people in his view that he was to take care of, that he was to do everything to save them, to reveal the Father to them, and so on. Even when he came into the world. And then, of course, as he died on the cross, union with Christ was a huge factor, a huge doctrine that is in view. We, we've read it already in Romans 6, so let's go back there. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Just like we say, when Adam sinned, I was in him. And so I sinned in him. And now in chapter 6 of Romans, we read in verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know, Paul says, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The point I'm bringing out here is not just that when in our conversion we were in Christ, in our death to sin. My point is, as I said last time, our conversion is just when we enter into the experience of union with Christ. But the reality is, we've been in Christ since before the foundation of the world. Every believer has been. And therefore, we were in Him when He died on the cross, just like we were in Adam when He sinned in the garden. So, we sinned in Adam, we died in Christ when He was on the cross. And then go on to the Christian life. Verses 5 and 6 of Romans 6. Paul says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So we're in him when he rose. Now we could say we're, we haven't yet experienced the resurrection but we have begun to experience resurrection life. Because that's what verse 6 is talking about. That we might no longer be slaves of sin. Now that's talking about the Christian life. We're in Christ. We have risen in Him and because of Him. Through Him. However you want to say it. And then again, let's look forward to the resurrection at the last day. Why will we rise again? Because between now and then, we're still not going to fall off of his belt. It'll be in him and because of him. So look at the 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, first of all. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that means they've died. It's talking about Christians 
from their congregation there in the city of Corinth who have died. What should you think about them? Well, one thing you should definitely think about them if they died as Christians, they're in Christ. They're safe. And then he, he starts to speak about the truth that we look at and we're talking about here in Romans 6, but especially as explained in Romans 5. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Just like death came through the one man Adam, resurrection comes to us through the resurrection of the one man, Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Christ all will be made alive. That's the resurrection at the last day. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's, we could say it this way, those who are in him, at his coming. That's what Paul is saying here. And then let's think of, what about after that? What about from the day of resurrection in our entry into glory in the new heavens and the new earth in our life with Christ and in this world, the new heavens, the new earth after that? Well, let's go to Romans 8, chapter 31 and following. So Romans 8, verse 31 and following. Romans 8, what is, what, how does this present it? How does this represent it? Paul raises another question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And remember how Pastor Smith asked the question, why will he keep us to the end? Is it because God is omnipotent? And I, I don't remember if I'll hit everything he said. And he said, yes, that's part of it. Is it because God is faithful? Yes. Is it because God is unchangeable? Yes. But why is it especially? It's because of the love of God. No one, nothing will ever be able to separate a Christian you, if you're a believer, from the love of God. And then I sat there and I thought, and when I get up in that pulpit, I'm going to say, and is there anything else? And my answer is yes, there is especially this. The union of us 
with Jesus Christ. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But now remember, to get back to earth, if you will, and to get back to our passage, the precise point of the teaching of Romans chapter 6, at least this first half here, really the whole chapter though, it's not that once you have been justified, your sins will remain forgiven. Though that's true, and that's a reality because of our union with Christ. But the emphasis of this chapter is not that. And it's not that once you have been joined to Christ, you will remain joined. Though that's true. It's a given in this text. Paul assumes that. Furthermore, the point of Romans 6 is not that if you repented and believed, you will be raised at the last day. That's a Bible truth. <clears throat> but that's not the point of this text. It's not the point of verse 8 when Paul says in Romans 6, 8, Now, we, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's not Paul's point in this text. The point of this verse is this. Since you are united to Christ as a Christian, and every Christian is united to Jesus Christ, then that means you were united with him in his death. We've already had that stated numerous times up to this point in this chapter. And, and, and the point continues. And if you were united with him in his death, so shall you be united with him in his life. Verse 8, we shall also live with him. And remember what I've said already up to this point, and I've said it more than once today, that life is this life. The life of Romans 6 is this life in the here and now. It is the one we are living today. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize at the end of verse 5, even so we should walk in newness of life. That is the way we live. It has to do with our walk before God. And the end of verse 6, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Not after the second coming. Though that'll be true then in a way that it's not now for a Christian. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. But even now, a Christian, by definition, is no longer a slave to sin, according to verse 6. Because verse 7, he has been freed from sin. Verse 8, he now lives with Christ and in Christ. Death no longer has dominion over him, even in this life. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, present tense, you and I, the Roman Christians back then, he lives to God, just like Jesus does. And so verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are present tense, not under law, but under grace. In other words, the idea that someone who has truly trusted Christ will not live a changed life. The notion that he will not live a godly life. That he will not live a righteous life going forward is preposterous. It's impossible. It's unthinkable. 
That's what Paul is saying here in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, verse 5 said it, that it certainly will happen. We shall live in the likeness of his resurrection. We shall be united to him in the likeness of his resurrection. But it's the here and now, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Because remember, Paul is answering the question of verse 1. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And a Christian who has been taught these truths should answer, well, absolutely not. Just like Paul said, certainly not. May it never be. God forbid. Different translations of those words in the Greek. That's what Paul is, is saying here. And so we say, Certainly not. A Christian will not continue to live in sin and live a life that is not changed, that is not godly, that is not righteous. And in verse 8, we express it this way. This we believe. We are confident about this. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what God makes happen in Christ through the work of his Holy Spirit in every believer. I don't know if I quoted this yet. I thought I had in preaching through and teaching through Romans 5, but I couldn't find it in my, in my notes. So I'm going to quote John Murray if I haven't quoted him on this point yet. He wrote in his book, Redemption Accomplished and, and Applied, in a chapter entitled Union with Christ, these words, Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I can remember the first time I read those words. I don't know if when I first read them, I was convinced that they were true. That was around 40 years ago. By now, I'm slow. I am convinced it's true. It really is true. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I mentioned also that another commentator said that Romans 5, 12 through 21, the last half of Romans 5 that we've been talking about again today, and this is one of the reasons I've been doing it, because this, this commentator also convinced me of this, as did others. He said, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is the heart of the epistle of Romans. And the reason he says that is this. It tells us in Romans 5, the last half of the chapter, that Christ, the new Adam, has not just made possible salvation from sin, but he has done that by introducing a radically and completely new, this is this commentator's language, eon, E-O-N or A-E-O-N, or an age. He's he's, Christ has broken into this present world, this sin-cursed world, and he's brought this new order of not sin and condemnation and death, but of righteousness, justification, and life. That's what he has done. And that changes everything. And it all happens in him. So we could say Romans 5 casts its shadow backwards to everything that is said in chapters 3 and 4 about justification 
It comes in Christ because he's our head, our federal head. But it also, um, it also casts its shadow forward. It casts its shadow back. It tells us because of our head and our union with him that we can be saved from the sin of our father Adam, that we can be justified because of Christ's work, that our sins are forgiven, that we are clothed with his righteousness, that we will be raised at the last day, all because of what he did, not only on the cross, but everything he did in our place. But then chapter 6, in the first part of chapter 6, it tells us that that union of us with Christ has everything to do with the way that we live the Christian life. It has everything to do with the practical application of the teaching of Romans 5 and of Romans 3 and of Romans 4, because that's what Paul gets into starting in Romans chapter 6. Union with Christ, brethren, is why we can walk in newness of life or you could say it this way, it's why we must walk in newness of life. If we're united with him, there's no other option, is there? Because he lives to God, that means we have to, if we're united to him. And it union, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the reason why we will walk in righteousness and godliness, as Romans 6 teaches Again, verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. If you're in Christ, it's an impossibility. And now, and then in verse 9 and 10, he goes on to explain the firm foundation for that conviction. And I have notes that I could preach it right now, but I'm not going to. Because I stopped anyway uh, earlier than I had wanted to because I wanted to say more. And, I, and I'm not going to compress all that I even have here left. So, Christ's death was a crucifixion, and crucifixion was what happened to us, and Christ didn't stay in the grave, he came out of it, and that's the way we are too as well. I only got this far, uh, the basis of our, I just only got to our confidence, I wanted to get into the basis of our confidence We'll get into that next time. Um, I wanted to get all the way through verse 11 because that's where the practical application comes in. So I have no practical application. But you, if you just start reading the rest of chapter 6, you'll have it all right there. It has to do with the way we live. We need to live as those who are united with Christ. If you've been united in, with him in his death, I've been converted. But the Bible has no room for that idea. Now, I'm, now I know that I'm safe. doesn't matter how I live. I've prayed the prayer. I've signed the card. I've walked the aisle. I've been baptized. Paul says, how are you living? That'll say a lot to me about whether you're united with Jesus Christ or not. But let me do say this as I close. We'll begin next time with the basis of this confidence. As I said, the practical application really begins with verse 11. Let me just give some practical application here to unbelievers sitting here. If you're sitting here and you're an unbeliever, there's a sense in which you can say, well, that, that doesn't really apply to me. 
I'm not united with Christ. I haven't died to sin. I haven't died to sin with Christ and risen to newness of life. I'm an unbeliever. You may not look at it in as dark terms as I do, as dark terms as the Bible does. It says you're dead in your trespasses and sin. It says you're without hope and without God in the world. But here's what I say to you today. This, this all might not make sense to you. And as I said, in a way it doesn't even really apply to you if you're not a Christian. It doesn't apply to you. But it could apply in this way. You could look at that and say, you know, one time Jesus said when he was on this earth in the Gospels, maybe you've read it somewhere, maybe you've heard it somewhere. He did say this, count the cost. If you want to enter into following Christ, start following him, count the cost. Think of what life will be like following Jesus. It's going to be different. That's what Jesus was saying. That's what Paul's saying. It's got to be different. And you can ask yourself, do I want that kind of a life? You might look at it as a sad life sitting here on Sunday morning. You could be at the mall. You could be out playing basketball indoors. You could be watching uh, the NFL or the NBA on CBS or whatever it is nowadays. You could be doing that. Who wants to do this? I'll just say this. Our testimony, most of the people sitting here in this room this morning, our testimony is this. The cost, now that we know what you get for the cost, even though as Jesus said it'll cost you everything you have, the cost really is relatively nothing. Having paid the cost, we have no regrets. No complaints even. We're thankful, we're hopeful, we're blessed. And the best is yet to come. We would do it over again in a heartbeat. We wish you would do it. Because we want you to be thankful and hopeful and blessed. You will have no regrets if you give yourself to Jesus Christ, if you put your trust in Him. You and you will thank us for the advice forever. So let's put that aside for a moment and just turn a couple of chapters over and I'll read one text and I'll be done. Romans 10, 8 and 9. Let's get right down to, to the heart of the matter, to the bottom of the issue. But what does it say? In other words, what does God say? What does the Bible say? It says this, The word that is near you, even in your mouth, the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. You've just heard the word of God preached, the gospel preached. It's near you. You don't have to move from your seat to change everything. Here's what it is, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's true today. 
And that's true every day of your life from this earth. But you don't know that you have days coming. You just don't, I don't know that I'm going to be alive tomorrow. Put your trust in Him today. And it will change everything. And you will be in Christ. And you will have newness of life that will never, ever be extinguished. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take that word and write it upon our hearts. We pray especially for those who do not know Jesus Christ as they have heard what Jesus Christ does and how he saves sinners, at least part of what he does and how it happens and how it works. Let them believe in that Savior today and let them believe in that glorious gospel today by the mighty working of your Holy Spirit in their hearts, so that they, this day, might confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you have raised him from the dead, that they might be raised too, that they might be found in him, that they might go down to their houses this day justified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.